Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. We're continuing today in this uh, long series we've been in on the Book of Romans. Uh, today, if I'm counting right, it is part 12. Um, we're going to continue this march through uh, chapter 8 today, uh, and we've been in chapter 8 for a while. We're going to continue to be in chapter 8 for a while. Uh, and today, we're going to look at the theme of praying in the Spirit. So turn with me, if you will, to Romans 8, beginning in verse 15, Romans 8, 15 uh, through 27. And Rav Shaul of Paul says this, If you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but rather you received the spirit of sonship, by him we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. Now, if we're children, then we're heirs. Heirs with God and co-heirs with Messiah. If indeed, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings aren't even worthy comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in, in the hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that, that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we eagerly await for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that's seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we don't yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with God's will. Amen. Now this passage here, it's stuffed with insights about prayer. Uh, especially uh, verse 15, the key verse we're going to look at, uh, jump off of today, where Paul says that by the Spirit we cry out of our Father. Now there are five foundational things that this passage, five foundational truths this passage tells us about prayer, especially all packed into this one phrase, in Him we cry out of our Father. So we're told this, we're going to put it on the overhead, please. We're told this, number one, that prayer is primal. We cry, Abba, Father. Number two, prayer is real. In him we cry, Abba, Father. Number three, it's positional. In him we cry, Abba, Father. Number four, it's deeply experiential. In him, in the Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. And then number five, it's communal. Because in him we, we all cry, Abba, Father. So on the overhead again, number one, prayer is primal. It's two, it's real. Three, it's positional. For it's experiential, and five, it's communal. So number one, first we're taught here that prayer is primal. Uh, what do I mean by that? It says that in him we cry, Abba, Father. 
Now, Abba is, is an Aramaic word that children would use with their father, meaning daddy. And as we discussed, if you were here two weeks ago, it actually goes deeper than this. It really is best translated dada. Because if you look at the word itself, Abba, what is that? There's no etymology to that word. Uh, sometimes, you know, by young kid, babies, grandmothers are called mama or mima, and some grandfathers are called uh, bipa. Where do these words come from? You may have other silly words, you know, for, for grandparents. Why? Now, an eight-year-old does, would not have said Abba. Infants used this word because it's primal. It's instinctive. It's the very first words that come out of a baby's or a toddler's mouth. And what's it getting at? Why would Paul make a reference to this most primal and instinctive, earliest form of language that we can come up with? I'll tell you why. An eight-year-old, by the time they're eight, they're already calculating. <laughs> An eight-year-old says, I want uh, Daddy to give me this or that. I know. I'll be cute. I'll run up. I'll, I'll jump in his lap. I'll say, Daddy. Even eight-year-olds can do that. <laughs> but what infants want when they say dada is they just want dada. Infants want to grab the neck. Infants want to come up and get close to your face. Uh, uh, they want to see the world the way Daddy sees it. What Paul is saying is that when you become a Yeshua follower, when the Spirit himself comes to live within you, because that's what it means to, to have saving faith, and to be a real believer, the Holy Spirit indwells you. But how do you know you have the Spirit? How do you know you're born again? Well, the first thing that happens, Paul's saying here, is the minute the Spirit comes to live within you, there's a kind of language towards God that you did not have before. Without being a believer, you can still ask God for things. Without being a Yeshua follower, you can have the language of, of information, the language of duty. I know I need to go. I know I need to talk to God. I need to get things. Uh, I know my duty. Uh, ask for blessings. But what Paul is saying here is that when the Holy Spirit himself comes in, something new happens. There's a new kind of relationship with God, and therefore a new kind of prayer language. Like an infant crying out for Abba, for Ima. This prayer language is primal. It's instinctive. It's a desire just for God himself. You did not have this before you were a believer. But now you're not just after Yeshua, but now, now all you are, you're after Yeshua alone now just for who he is, uh, you're after his neck, just desiring above all else to grab hold of him, cling to him, express your love for him. You're after his face, to see him, panim el panim, face to face, to gaze upon his glory and his beauty, to behold him that you may become like him. You're after his embrace, you long for him. Your heart aches after him, runs to him. After his kiss, Psalm 2 says, kiss the son. Just, you're just after his nearness itself. James 4, verse 8 on the overhead here. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. That is now your heart's desire. 
but, but without the Holy Spirit, that's not what, really what you're after. Without the Holy Spirit, prayer becomes mechanical and rote. Prayer becomes just something obligatory, something you're supposed to do. Not because you have a real passion to commune with God. Without the Holy Spirit, prayer becomes just something you do, something you do to, to make yourself look religious, or something you do when you're in trouble, when you're in desperate need. When trouble comes, you go to shul, you pray. When trouble's gone, you don't have that instinct. You just don't want to be near him. The earliest language we have are, are, are silly words, right? Like, like horsey, doggy. What is that? That's the language of wonder. It's the language of love. It's the language of praise. And Paul says, without the Holy Spirit, you do not have that. But when the Spirit comes into your life, you do. And this is the reason why Yeshua can say in Matthew 6, 5, beginning in verse 5, When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they uh, love to stand praying in the synagogue uh, and in the street corners to be seen by others. But truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your closet, close the door, Pray to your Father who's unseen. And your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Yeshua is saying, he's talking about these hypocrites here, right? He'd like to see other people, like to, like to have other people see them pray. So Yeshua is saying, how do you know you're a hypocrite? And of course, we might be tempted to say, well, hypocrites, they go to, they go to shul, they go to congregation, but secretly they're cheating on their spouse. And yes, sure, that, that's a hypocrite. But it's interesting, that's not the example that Yeshua uses. Yeshua says a hypocrite is someone without a private prayer life. A hypocrite is someone who doesn't just want to be with God for its own sake, for simply the sake of being madly in love with the Lord, in and of itself, with no ulterior motives. A hypocrite is someone prays only when they have to, or when you're expected to. Uh, when you feel like, oh, I better do it. I need to get on the right side of God. But there's something about this spirit-led prayer in Romans 8 that's very different. The Holy Spirit creates a primal language to express your heart's cry, to express your deepest desire just to be with the Lord. You have a longing to be with him, a yearning, you ache for his presence. You're lovesick. You want nothing more than just to be with him. You pray to him, to sing to him, to dance with him, to gaze into his eyes, to rest your head upon his breast. There is a hunger. There is a thirst. As the desert parched deer pants for the water, your soul longs for Yeshua. He's your meat and your drink. A day in his presence is really worth a thousand anywhere else. I need O.D., but O.D. Lee. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. That's the first thing about spirit-led, spirit-filled prayer. It's primal. Do you know that kind of prayer? Do you experience it? Do you practice it? Does it accurately express your deepest heart's desire? 
you have that in your prayer life. That's number one. Number two, uh, not only do we cry, Abba, Father, uh, we also, by him, we cry, we cry out, Abba, Father. Uh, we cry out because it's real. It's, it's authentic. It's raw. Uh, so prayer is real. What do you think prayer functions as? Most believers think prayer is the tool by which I get things from God that I want in my life. My best life now. The means by which my will be done. Prayer is a consumer tool for the religious. And therefore, most believers also feel that now that I'm a Yeshua follower, bad things, really bad things, cannot happen to me. They're never going to happen to me. You know, there's a floor beneath which God would never let uh, his children go. There's, yeah, there's a certain amount of misery, but, but I may have, but I'm, I'm never going to have that high level of misery. Uh, and if I pray, I'm going to get many other things I want. And that's how most believers today in America understand prayer. But the biblical teaching on prayer is much more real than that. The biblical view is much more realistic and balanced because the text does not say that when we just say, Abba, Father, or, or squeal, Abba, Father, it says when we cry out, Abba, Father. And this word cry is a word of deep emotion. It's usually used by a person in distress. Throughout the New Testament, the same word is used almost always by someone in distress, crying out. So, for example, in Matthew 14, where Peter's walking on the water, he takes his eyes off Yeshua, he starts to, to, to sink. We read this in Matthew 14, 29. Uh, then Shimon Kepha, Peter, he gets out of the boat, walked on the water, came toward Yeshua. But when he saw the wind, he began to be afraid and began to sink. And he cries out, Lord, save me. Peter cries out. He's in distress. He wasn't saying, hi, Yeshua, how's it going? <laughs> no, he was sinking. And he cries out. It's an exclamation of distress. Now, our chapter here, Romans 8, is often taught as the victorious life of the believer. Yet when you actually read Romans 8, it's the most realistic chapter you can find about life. Because three times in this one chapter, Paul sums up his life in this world with the term groaning. Three times. You're interesting, one translator translates this Greek word as sighing and throbbing with pain. Interesting. Look at, for example, uh, the first, first use of it is Romans 8.22. We know the whole creation has been groaning. It's in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Paul's saying the whole physical world is groaning. It's sighing and throbbing in pain. Why? Because we live in a fallen world, subject to decay and disorder and death. Everything in this life falls apart eventually. Second law of thermodynamics. Everything in this world is falling apart. We read this in Romans 8.20. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its choice, but by the will of the, of the one who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will be liberated one day from its bondage to decay. Paul's saying here this present world is messed up. Uh, and nature itself is in bondage to decay. Now, the popular culture today tries to paint a very different picture about nature. So, for example, we have uh, in The Lion King, you've got nature otherwise red in tooth and claw, but here nature is portrayed as, as what? The 
noble circle of life, right? <laughs> and little Simba uh, asks his father about all this killing and death. And his father says, well, we're, we're all joined with the antelope in the circle of life. And Simba says, I thought we'd kill and eat the antelope. And his father says, yes, we eat the antelope, but when we die, our bodies become fertilizer for the grass, and the, fertil- and the antelopes eat the grass. So we're all joined to this wonderful circle of life. And Disney makes it look so nice and sweet and innocent. When you actually see something dead, even an animal, certainly a human, you just instinctively know that's not the way it's supposed to be. And, and Paul's saying here, this is bondage to decay. Paul says the creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth. The whole physical world is sobbing and, and, and sighing and throbbing in pain. Now, many people glibly say, oh, yeah, that's right, but, but we're believers now. Uh, we're immune. Really. Look at the very next verse, Romans 8, 23. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Paul says that Yeshua followers groan too. We also, in this life, sigh and throb in pain. The world's falling apart. It's sighing and throbbing in pain. And we, even as believers, we also sigh and throb with it. We too groan. And so we cry out in prayer to our Heavenly Father. Now, now this is a scandal for some people, uh, but here's what happens. When a plague or a disease hits the town, believe it or not, surprise, surprise, the Yeshua followers die along with the non-Yeshua followers. When an avalanche hits the town, the believers are buried with the non-believers. When a massacre happens in a high school, the Messianics are shot along with the non-Messianics. There's nothing in the Bible that says that Yeshua followers are going to have an easier life than anybody else. But look carefully at what the Word of God does say. Three times, Paul says that life is groaning. First, he says the physical world, the creation, is groaning. Second, he says we as believers, we also groan. Now look at who else, thirdly, who else also groans. It's amazing. The Spirit himself groans. Look at Romans 8, 26. In the same way, the Spirit himself helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes through us, how? Through wordless groans, through through groanings too deep for words. We live in a fallen world uh, with brokenness, failure, immorality, corruption, sin. But now the Spirit comes into your life as a believer, and what's the purpose of the Spirit? The common understanding is that now that the Spirit's in your life, you'll experience strength. That's not what the text says. Look carefully. Verse verse 26 assumes that the believer's life is a continual experience of weakness. The text doesn't say the Spirit takes away your weakness. No, rather it says the Spirit helps you through your weakness. It doesn't save you from your weakness, but it helps you through it. Now, now what 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 do I mean here by weakness? Well, often, sadly, realistically, if we're honest, it means a sense of repeated spiritual failure, uh, of fleshly habit patterns, of addictions, besetting sins. And at the very least, it refers to being weak in the midst of a world that's otherwise sighing and throbbing in pain. 
It can refer to disappointments, sickness, death, bereavement, grief. And it doesn't stop. It keeps going. What we're told here is that if you are a Yeshua follower, what the Spirit does is that he gets you to groan. Verse 15, we're told the Spirit gets us to cry, Abba, Father, which is almost the same thing. So, so here he's, he's, here's what we're being told. You're going to groan. You've, if, you've had a really li- if you've had a really nice, trouble-free life so far, all that means is you're very young. <laughs> you're definitely under 30. <laughs> because eventually you will groan. <laughs> if you haven't, if, and if you have not had a carefree life, if you've had problems and griefs and, and struggles and heartaches, then you know about this. At some point, you are going to groan. It's not a question of whether or not you'll groan. It's not a question of, of whether or not you can have a good life or a bad life. Everyone at some point is going to experience some bad things. Everyone is going to experience loss. Everyone's going to experience sighing and throbbing. The real question is how do you grow? And we're told here is what the Spirit does. He does not take away your weakness. He gets you to look to the Father. He gets you to cry out, Abba, Father. Look at Romans 8, verse 27. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. The Spirit prays for us. He prays for his ultimate goal for us. And in verses 28 to 30, they tell us what this ultimate goal is. The ultimate goal is conformity to the image of the Son of God, Yeshua the Messiah. Look at Romans 8, 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now here's what this means. You're going to grow. But if while you're in suffering and weakness, you pray to the Father, you remember who he is, you think on who he is, you experience who he is, you get a new grasp on who he is, if you grow towards the Father as his adopted child, there's going to be a deepening in your spiritual life, a deepening wisdom, a development of, the be- of, uh, of beauty within your, within your heart, uh, of spiritual clarity. Uh, you'll expand. You will grow through your weakness. But if you don't do this in your time of weakness, if you don't grow toward the Father, you will end up living in denial and living in isolation, living in self-hatred. You will shrink under the weakness. You're going to experience weakness. You're going to groan. The question is, are you going to grow under it or shrink under it? That's the reality and then the wisdom of the Bible. So the second point under this reality of prayer is that prayer is not a consumer tool. It's a refiner's fire. We'll put that in the overhead, please. Prayer is not a consumer tool. It's a refiner's fire. It's not a guarantee of a comfortable life, but it's a guarantee of how to grow in the Lord, even in the midst of the sighing and throbbing of this world. Verses 15 and 26, crying, Abba, Father, uh, and the Spirit groaning within you. These aren't talking about two different kinds of things, or two different kinds of crying out. Rather, the Spirit helps you, uh, gets you to, to grab hold of the Father's neck. The Spirit gets you to understand your sonship. The Spirit says, process all of life's struggles and groanings with the fact that as a believer, God is your Father. 
through the throbbing and the pain, God says, I will grow you. The Spirit says this, through prayer towards the Father. If you pray in the Spirit toward the Father. Now, this is an amazing encouragement. Because we, we don't always know how to pray. You know, I saw my kids born. I heard the first, their first cries at birth, exercising their lungs. What do those cries mean? Probably maybe something like this. Why is this man slapping me? <laughs> Why is it so cold and bright and open here? <laughs> I was fine in this nice, secure womb. <laughs> What's going on? Why am I upside down? <laughs> what that guy doing with a big knife? <laughs> now, if only you could tell your child, in spite of the fact you're being slapped or you're cold, everything's upside down, the fact is, the truth is, everything is happening for you. And the child knows, all the child knows is, someone's slapping me. Uh, I'm being pulled. Uh, there's blood everywhere. But the reality is, everything is happening for, on behalf of, for the benefit of the child. Everything. Everybody's eyes are on the child. Everything's being done for the child. All the medical professionals, they're working on behalf of the child. The child's being born. The child's being made safe. Everything's happening for him or her. All the child feels is being slapped and made cold and blood everywhere. But that's a picture of our life as a believer. Paul is evoking it here in Romans 8. When he says the spirit, when the spirit comes into your life, it's like being born. Paul even calls it here, the pains of childbirth. All groaning is for a purpose. So look at Romans 8, 22. We know the whole creation's been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, we who are the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Notice the imagery Paul uses here to describe the groaning of creation, the pains of childbirth. And your groaning, your spiritual groaning, is described in similar ways. When you come to the Father through Yeshua, the Son of God, again, God the Son, when you say to to God, in spite of everything that's happening to me, I know that you are my Father, and I want to experience your love. I want to trust you as my Father. And when you do that in prayer, in the midst of your weakness, you will grow. It'll grow you. Your weakness will grow you. Through all the blood and guts and all the slapping and all the things that don't seem to work, you're being brought out of darkness into light, out of infancy into maturity. Do you see that? What an incredibly realistic view of prayer this is in Romans 8. How utterly different it is from the popular consumer model of prayer. So number one, prayer is primal. Number two, we cry out with him, we cry, Abba, Father. Number two, it's real. We cry out, Abba, Father. Number three, this is key, prayer is positional. With him we cry, Abba, Father. Notice that when when teaching the disciples how to pray, Yeshua didn't say, start out by saying, Lord God, or Holy One, or or Master, or Almighty of the universe. No, what what does Yeshua say? Start by saying, Our Father. I think here's what he means. Unless you understand your position, unless you know that as a Yeshua Father, you have been adopted into God's family as his son, unless you know your new legal standing, you're not going to be able to pray in such a way that will grow you through weakness. 
You're not going to be able to pray this primal language of intimacy. You're not going to be able to pray in all the ways the Lord wants you to pray. Unless you understand your position before, uh, in God as a believer. When Paul says, when you pray, say, Abba, Father, he's saying something astounding. You know, in Western culture, we have a tendency to very glibly say, oh, everybody's a child of God, right? We say, of course God's our Father, and, and we're all his children. People who say that in that way do not understand the Holy Scriptures. Because all the other religions of the world, when they see Yeshua crying out, Abba, Father, when they see Yeshua praying, Abba, Father, they're scandalized. They're shocked. Yeshua was the first one ever to call God Abba. He was the first one to ever talk to God like that. And everyone in the world who heard him, whether you were a pagan Roman or an Orthodox Jew, everyone was offended and astounded. And if we are not equally shocked by this, we were not going to be transformed by it. If you don't feel the outrage and the offensiveness of, of calling God Father, you're never going to be transformed by calling God Father. Why were they so outraged? I'll tell you why. Because to call God Abba Father means, first of all, that that uh, even though he's the king of the universe, you're, you are assuming that you are his heir. You're assuming that you're his son, to call him father. Every other religion says that God is so great, how dare you assume that you are already his child? You know, if you're working for somebody as a hired hand, uh, he gives you your wage, your income as, as your employer. But if he's your father... You already have all the wealth that's coming to you. If you're his child, you're the heir of the estate. Uh, and, and, and so for someone to come to the God of the universe and to call him father was incredible. The listeners were saying, uh, what makes you, Yeshua, think you're so great? What makes you think you're so perfect? What makes you think you're so holy? What gives you the right to assume that kind of intimacy, this kind of dignity, the God of the universe. Well, here's what's critical. The disciples, at first they were shocked. Then they came to know who Yeshua was. Yeshua was the Son of God. Yeshua lived a perfectly holy life. Yeshua gave his life sacrificially for you, for me. In other words, Yeshua deserved to call God Father. Yeshua deserved to call God Abba. And so now you, you begin to understand the incredible, revolutionary claim that Paul makes here in Romans 8.15 when he says that you and you and you and I, every Yeshua follower, has the right to also call God Abba, Father. When Paul uses this term, when Paul says, we all cry, Abba, Father, this is what he's saying. This means that if you are a Yeshua follower, God treats you as if you're everything that Yeshua himself was. And God honors you as if you have done everything that Yeshua himself did. If you are a Yeshua follower, it doesn't mean you're simply trying hard, hoping someday God will bless you. It means you are an heir. It means that you're in. It means you're part of the family. It means that God now treats you regards you, loves you, dotes on you, adores you, 
honors you as if you have done everything Yeshua had done. As if you were everything that Yeshua was. Because only Yeshua has the right to call God Abba Father. And yet Paul says, the minute you become a Yeshua follower, you have that same right. How can this be? Because this is the difference between the gospel and religion. In religion, we hope that somehow, someday, by living a good life, we can put God in our debt, so to speak, and he'll have to bless us. But the gospel, in contrast, is that Yeshua lived the life that you should have lived. And he died the death that you should have died. So that when you repent, and when you trust in him, and when you cry out to God to accept me, based solely on what Yeshua has done, and adopt me into your family, at that moment, you receive the spirit of sonship. At that moment, you are adopted into his family. And so when Yeshua says, when you pray, address God as our Father in heaven, do you see how this should revolutionize your prayer life once you grasp the depths of what he's saying here? To know that you are a son, you are a daughter, praying to your Father in heaven. If you approach the Lord knowing you're an adopted child, First of all, this is going to bring out the language of intimacy. You're not there wheedling and cajoling and trying to get things from God. You know you're already his child. You just want God. The ultimate heart desire is not for things, but for God himself. The way you can tell the difference between a Yeshua follower, a believer, and a religious person is that the language of intimacy comes only when you understand your position, your standing before God. And if you've truly been born again, and the Spirit of God residing within you, God looks at favor, with favor upon you. If you're abiding in Yeshua, God is well pleased with you. Now look, I'm a father. But my daughters are, are, are pleasing me. I love them. I feel like their father. When they're displeasing me, when they're disobeying me, I still love them. I'm still their father. They're still my children. In fact, ironically, uh, you never more feel your responsibility and your heart for your children as, as when they're disobeying you. You see, if they were my employees, they would have been fired long ago by now. <laughs> because they're my children, they never fall out of my love. They're still part of my family. When you pray to the Lord, knowing your position in him, that creates a language of intimacy you otherwise would never have. And second, when you pray to your Father in heaven, that creates a language in which you grow through weakness. You see, if you don't know he's your Father, then when things go wrong and you're feeling weak, well, you're not going to pray at all because you're going to say, I can't go before him. I can't seek him. I can't do that. I don't deserve to, to be before him. Uh, when you've blown it, when you've experienced weakness, when you've sinned, uh, therefore you're not praying, you're not coming to shul, that should be a signal to you that you don't understand the gospel. You're not walking in the truth of the gospel. You're forgetting the basis of your relationship with God. But if you understand he's my father, then, when, then what, what happens is that your weakness does not shrink you back from him. does not shrink your relationship with him. It actually can grow it. 
if you come to him in repentance and renewal and return and restoration. So Yeshua is saying, unless you understand your position in God uh, as, as, my, as my father, uh, I'm his follower, I'm his disciple, unless you remember your position, unless you daily go before God, your heavenly father, know your position in him, meditating on that, thinking on that, praising him for that, glorifying him for that, if you don't do that, you will not grow in your prayer life. So number one, prayer is primal. Uh, number two, it, it's real. Number three, it's positional. Number four, it's experiential. By him, by this Holy Spirit, we experience and we cry out, Abba, Father. Verses 15 and 16 says that the Spirit brings about our adoption of sonship. The Spirit tells us we're children of God. Look at Romans 8, 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. The Spirit is the one who convinces your heart of the gospel. And the gospel is not that you earn your way to heaven, but rather it's I'm adopted into God's family through the blood of Messiah. I become an heir. I am not a hired hand. Verse 15 says, The Spirit teaches our spirit to cry, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit convinced our spirit, convinced our heart, convinced us that we are children of God. And then verse 16 says, the Spirit testifies to us that we are his children. Now, is this, is this repetitious, verse 16 and 15? No. Because verse 16 says this. It says, the Holy Spirit not only convinces your spirit that you are God's children, but sometimes also he comes alongside your spirit. It gives you an added testimony and drives home and emphasizes it and makes it experientially real to you in your time of need. The Spirit comes alongside of you in your time of need uh, and, and allows you to go higher up and deeper in. And communion and union with God. It means that the thing that, that you and I need more than anything else, think you can only get through prayer, the thing you and I need more than anything is not just intellectual knowledge that we're God's children. But it needs to be made real to your heart. We need a sense of, of, of Yeshua's love on our heart. The, the, you know, the objective truth of, of adoption to sonship now needs to be made sub subjectively real to us, experientially, uh, existentially real to you, to your soul. And that's the job of the Spirit. And he's willing to go deeper and deeper and put testimony upon testimony. And it's not just rotely, uh, rot rotely, routinely saying your prayers. Rather, prayer is the doorway into the infinite depths of God. Higher up. Deeper in. Here's a little picture. Father's father was walking down the street with his son, with his little boy. They're walking along, and all of a sudden, the father picks up the boy, holds him, hugs him in his arms, says, I love you. And the little boy hugs him around the neck. He puts him down, and then they go on walking. Let me ask you a question. Is that little boy more of a son when he's in his father's arms than when he's walking on the sidewalk? No. There's been no change in status. But there has been a change in the experience of that status. So verse 15 says you have the status. But verse 16 says the Spirit will pull you in deeper and deeper understanding and an experience of that status. And that's what we need. So, so if, for example, if you retaliate oh, when you're attacked, uh, if you're jealous uh, of others, 
if you're down on yourself, if you're controlled by other people's expectations, it's because you're not living in and walking in and experiencing your adoption. It means you need to go from verse 15 to verse 16. You need to go higher up and deeper in with the Lord. It's the thing we most need, the thing that, that prayer, praying in the Spirit will give you. That's what, that's what you need to be after in prayer. Here's a quick example of kind of the kind of intimate fellowship with the Lord in prayer that's available to you, to all of us, as a Yeshua follower. Why? Because Yeshua has opened the way for this unique fellowship and personal relationship with God Himself. Do not miss this. This is amazing. Now, through the blood of Messiah, we have intimacy with God. We have closeness with God. Like a marriage relationship. Like his, we are his bride. Just the other day, I woke up early, watched the sunrise, just spreading out, spending time with God, seeing the sun spread out across the horizon, looking as it rises up. I saw its beams just radiating over the vastness of creation. And it just hit me in a fresh way that I actually know this God. I know him. And I'm talking to him right now. And I'm hearing his still small voice in return, talking to me. Is that not amazing? So put aside your, your, uh, your, familiarity, your familiarity. Put aside your jadedness. Uh, and see anew and afresh how miraculous and amazing this is. To realize that we have the opportunity for communion and fellowship with the Lord of the universe. I just fell on my face with, with tears of joy. So overwhelmed with this realization. Not wanting to take it for granted or, or be indifferent towards it. And the good news is, is you can have the same fellowship and communion and intimacy with Yeshua as well every day. You can have fellowship with God. I exhort you not to miss this. I am zealous for you not to neglect this in the busyness of your life. I want you to know Yeshua has made a way for you to experience intimacy and joy and fellowship and union with God and for you to pursue this with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. Do not miss this. Don't walk through life missing this ultimate joy and love, and peace, and ecstasy. Don't walk through life missing this, and then, call, and then try to call it messianic faith. That is not messianic faith. Yeshua is offering you today everlasting love. Do not neglect this. Do not ignore this invitation to walk with the Lord in his heavenly bliss. You may consider yourself a believer, but if you're honest, um, ask yourself, do I know this fellowship with God? Do I know this intimacy with God, this, this closeness with God? And so I just want to plead with you today not to settle for anything less than this. To cry out to the Lord, Lord Yeshua, I want this kind of intimacy with you. I desire it with all my heart. The Lord delights to answer that kind of prayer. He wants you today to know and experience and enjoy his everlasting love. Cry out to your Abba today. 
to prayer. It's primal, it's real, it's positional, it's experiential. And then finally, lastly, number five in the overhead here, prayer is communal. Very quickly. By him we, plural, cry, Abba, Father. Sure, when he gave us this model of how to pray, he didn't say, when you pray, say, my Father. No, what did he say? He said, our Father. When Yeshua gave us a model of spirituality, it was a corporate model. We so much miss this in our modern Western culture, which is so highly individualistic, uh, and so highly independent and me-centered. We, because the family, the clan, the community, the congregation, that's no longer the focus. The focus is now entirely on me within our culture. Our identity is self-centered, not group or corporate-centered. Uh, but that is not so the biblical model at all. Judaism and the Bible has a strong focus on corporate identity as a people, as a covenant community, as a faith family. So on the one hand, you have to have a, a vibrant private prayer life. On the other hand, you also need to, have to pray communally as well, as a group interceding to the Lord together. Until you have a faith family that you can pray our Father with, you're never going to really be able to say very well, my Father. The Lone Ranger Messianic faith does not exist. The Bible knows nothing of that. You must be able to say our Father. That's why, for example, our Tuesday night Torah study and prayer group uh, is so important. I want to encourage you to attend. So let me ask you, who do you pray with? Ironically, one of the best ways to deepen your prayer life individually is to deepen your prayer life corporately. So unless you have relationships that are intimate enough, whereby you can let your prayer partners hear you groan, hear you cry out to the Lord, Abba, Father, you're not going to be able to grow spiritually the way Yeshua wants you to grow. Now, a lot of you, if you're honest, you realize you are too aloof or cautious or distant, or restrained, or reserved to be willing to do that. But that is what you need. You need to be willing to open up your hearts before others and be part of a community. That's where, where we encourage and exhort and love and hold accountable each other. And that's how you grow. If you do not have that kind of relationship, that kind of accountability with someone, somebody you can open up with and be honest with and, and receive counsel and encouragement from, if no one ever hears you groan, that's one of the reasons why you're not growing the way the Lord wants you to grow. Because the biblical model of prayer is that is not only primal and, and real and, and positional and experiential, it's also communal. By him we all cry, Abba, Father. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. I want the music team to come on up. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. We thank you, Lord, today for the gift of your spirit, of which you give us freely as we turn away from our sin and we turn to you, Messiah, Yeshua, uh, your, the Son of God. Uh, and we thank you, Lord, that by your spirit we can cry out to you anytime, place, Abba, Father, and know that you are there with us. Lord, today, help us never to take this awesome privilege for granted. Help us not to neglect uh, this amazing opportunity to actually commune with you, Lord, the creator of the universe, the redeemer of our soul, 
Thank you, Lord, for adopting us into your family as your children. By the Spirit of, of Messiah, we cry out to you, Lord, Abba, Father, expressing our deepest desire and passion just to be with you, to hold your neck, to rest our head on your breast, to gaze into your eyes of love, to behold you that we might become more like you. Lord Yeshua, we want your embrace. We today cry out, we long for you. Like a desert parched deer pants for the water, my soul pants for you. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of coming to you in prayer. We want to come to you just for you, Yeshua. Not to get things, but to get you. This is our heart's cry. To dance with you, Lord, the divine dance of love and joy and shalom in your presence. I am my beloved's. My beloved's is mine. Let this be our passion for you, Lord, Yeshua, for greater intimacy and communion with you. So, Lord, deepen our prayer life to know this intimacy and ecstasy with you, to grow closer to you, whether in good times or bad. We pray this all in your holy name, B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.